The word of God from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thanks, Sarah. Um, Would you remain standing? And uh, I do want to encourage you guys to um, keep your Bibles open or Bible apps open um, as we'll be, you know, working through this text. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for these precious words. Uh, Thank you for how they shape us. And Lord, we're sorry that we don't often just run to your word looking in them for life. But we're here now, Lord. And uh, may your spirit just like work in us and uh, be, may there be a tenderness uh, that meets our soul, that we would see you and know you and love you more. So please uh, illumine the sacred song that we would see you and love you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Okay, I'm already teary. Um, well, good morning. 
So we're nearing the end of the summer, which means uh, the end of our summer in the Psalms. We've got just a couple more. And you'll remember as we've studied all summer, there's a range of Psalms and therefore a whole range of emotions. And, uh, and th- this is really important for understanding the various facets of God's heart. It helps us to see a new part of God's character and, and, and what he loves Because this is really important to understand. Because God is real, he is a complex being, just like you are, just like I am. With lots, there's lots of dimensions to who we are. The problem is, is that we tend to understand God as this one-dimensional being. And if God is one-dimensional, it's hard to have a relationship with him. You know, I think I mentioned this to you guys before, but during the COVID lockdown, uh, everything was shut down. So my family developed these rhythms that we repeated every single day. We would make dinner together. I'd read a portion of a book to my kids, and then we watched a movie together. I mean, we watched a movie every night. And so we decided we're going to go through the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy, and then we did the whole Hobbit trilogy. I mean, we saw all of them. And if you've seen these movies, uh, you know, there are scenes that are really bloody, uh, you know, there are scenes where like thousands of creatures are killed in gold blood. I mean, just wiped out. Just, uh, y'all remember the orcs? Some of you will remember orcs, right? They would just die like insects on a windshield. It was crazy. And, it, and the truth is, it's, not, a, it's not, not that big of a deal. Not even for my young, at the time, you know, middle school daughters. It wasn't a big deal for them. Why? Well, because they're, they're very one-dimensional, right? You can't have a relationship with them. You can't relate to them. And so their lives and their deaths, really from the viewer's perspective, are pretty inconsequential. But the hobbits, though, the hobbits are a little bit different, right? Frodo, for instance, sometimes he's good. Sometimes he's a knucklehead. Sometimes he's courageous. Sometimes he's foolish. He's all of those things, but he's really multi-dimensional. And so if it looks like Frodo's about to die, like our heart skips a beat. Why? Because the audience is developing a relationship with that character. Here's why I say that. Our view of God is often one-dimensional, right? For some, he's a sort of all-happy, kind of hippie, all-accepting sage that looks strikingly a lot like Morgan Freeman, like on Bruce Almighty. Uh, Sometimes, for others, maybe God is just this distant Man who is a toga-wearing, harp-playing, beard-wearing, cloud-riding dude. But in either case, he is difficult to have a relationship with because that version of God is flat. But each of these psalms gives us a different view or what I might call a governing metaphor to help us understand God. And so what we've seen this summer, for instance, is we've seen God as king. We've seen God as judge. We've seen God as a refuge. We've seen him as a shepherd. And you don't want to, like, just choose the one you like. You've got to hold all of these governing metaphors together. Because when God becomes all of those things to you, as Tim, the late, great Tim Keller likes to remind us, when God becomes all of those things to you, you become a Christian, <laughs> Because that's when you start having a relationship with him. And so 
You might even find yourself on that day saying something like this to your soul. Bless the, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is in me, bless his holy name. Have you ever like spoken to God like that? And like meant it? It's, it's tender, isn't it? It's vulnerable. So King David is the author of Psalm 103. He's, he's later in his years now, so he's a little bit saltier. And this guy now has had quite a relationship with God. And the lyrics of this song that we're going to look at are so enchanting. They're meant to lead us into a relationship. And so today, the governing metaphor that we're going to explore is God as a father, as a father. In verse 13, we're going to hear the lyricist sing, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So Psalm 103 is pretty long, and we're not going to be able to get to all of it. It's going to begin with David talking to his soul and saying, bless the Lord, soul. Don't forget his benefits, soul. This God who forgives, who redeems, who crowns with love, who's satisfied. And then that's how the, that's how the psalm will kind of open up. And then there's this middle part that's going to explain in detail these fatherly benefits. That middle part's going to be what we're going to focus on this morning. And then it's going to end with David not only telling his soul, but telling everyone, angels and rulers, like everyone is included, to bless the Lord. And that's kind of how the song ends. And so for you note takers, David Reed, uh, we're going to evaluate this song to see uh, how we can experience certainty that God, our Father, is our Father and that we are His children, because I want us to really understand ourselves that way. So there's going to be three benefits to sing to our soul. And so here they are, the Father's discipline, the Father's love, and the Father's embrace. So discipline, love, and embrace. So um, the first benefit to remind our souls is the Father's discipline. As many of you guys know, we lived um, most of the last two decades in Puerto Rico, and our home uh, where we lived was situated right in front of a park. And so uh, when we're, kids were younger, uh, you know, they would go to the park and play. They needed a supervisor, so I would take them often. And uh, the area that we lived in had tons of families, and so there were always a lot of children there. And so inevitably, I'm at the park, and I'd see a whole melee of children. And, uh, and this is the question that I had. Where are these kids' parents? <laughs> right? They're a bit rowdy. There's no supervision. Now, because most of these kids are not, I mean, I say most of them because I have like 100 kids, but because most of these kids are not mine, uh, it doesn't bother me too much. But on occasion, my kids will begin to mimic or imitate the behavior of these other rowdy kids. And so uh, at that point, my fatherly displeasure is awakened and I'll pull them aside and I'll discipline them. And so immediately my kids will go into lawyer mode and they'll say, why do I get in trouble when all of these other kids are doing the same thing? And I was like, hey, the, the answer is really easy because they're not my children. I only discipline my children. It'd be a little awkward to grab your kid and discipline them, right? And so I tell my kids, that's how you know you're mine. That's how you know you're mine. 
See, discipline is not evidence of my grumpiness or vengeance. It's a product of their privileged relationship with me and mine with them. And now, okay, listen, that's on a good day, right? Because sometimes my anger is a product of my vengeance because I'm a freak show dad who like yells at my kids on the way to church to get in a pulpit to preach to you about how to parent your kids. My hypocrisy knows no ends, I know. But on a good day, on a good day. But here's the thing. Although I might be a freak show, that's not how the Lord does it. The Lord is perfect in his fatherly discipline. So I'm imperfect, but he is perfect. Look at what it says there in verses 8 and 9. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. So what we see here is that there is indeed anger, but it's, it's a different kind of anger. He's slow. He's not explosive. He's not grumpy or passive-aggressive or touchy or manipulative. Anger is there, but, it, but it's clothed in steadfast love. Verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. God's anger has the shape of discipline, and that discipline is perfect, and it's constructive. And, and it's really important for you to see this part of God, or you will, if you don't, you will not want to come to him. God's parental anger is not retributive. He's not, look at me, He's not making you pay for your sins. And I, like, I wish I could like, shake you and like, make you believe this, especially, especially when you're going through a hard time or when you're suffering, right? Like when things don't go our way. And I mean, when things are sad and hard, what we do in that moment is we tend to project on God's motives. It's always my microphone. All right, here we go. I'll try to be still. We, try to, we always project onto God Really? <laughs> Satan. All right. I'm going to do this. I'm going to just grab the handheld. I turned mine off. All right, here we go. When you're sad, when you're suffering, when hard things come, we'll tend to project on God motives. Like, God, why are you making me pay for my sins? Why, like, why are you making me suffer, God? Like, you could fix this. Why are you doing this? And you will begin to resent him when life gets hard. Because you only understand his anger as you paying for something. Listen, when parents participate in retribution, right, when they're just making their children pay, that that kind of anger is poisonous, right? It's destructive. It's not constructive. But it's important to see God's anger in biblical perspective because we tend to project on God our bad experiences, right? For some, the, the, the unbridled anger, the, the abusive parent, right, who, who can't control their, their emotional or verbal anger, their, their, their anger is constantly thick with guilt and, and manipulation. Or... Maybe for other parents, there's no anger at all. They're, they're completely passive, and they're disinterested, and they're detached, and there's a neglect in their relationship. But with God, 
There is no inappropriate anger or misappropriated anger. I mean, there is anger. It is real. But it is the product of steadfast love, and it is skillful, for he will not always chide. He is, he's not disinterested in the choices of your life, but when you make bad ones, he's not going to lord it over you. And that is why we tell our soul to bless the Lord, bless him for his fatherly discipline. It's a benefit. There's a second benefit, and it is the Father's secure, unconditional, and unbreakable love. To be a child is to be saturated by your heavenly Father's love. I might tell a lot of stories about Micah. I just want y'all to be warned because I just dropped him off at college this week, my firstborn. When he was little, I'd wake him up on a Saturday morning, and let me tell you what I would not say to him. I wouldn't say... Clean your room, and if you do all of your work, if you're a good boy, I will love you. That's frightening. It's horrible. Call CPS. Instead, I would say something like, Micah, Micah, you're my boy. I'll always love you no matter what. Now let's, let's get to work. Let's do something, right? Can you see how love, in the second case, is, is the motivator for obedience? Love precedes obedience. Most people see God's love as a reward for obedience. Sadly, fear of rejection or reward of love has been the primary motivator in pulpits, Christian pulpits. And I'm sorry if you grew up hearing that message. I don't want you to hear that here. And it's sad because if we were to do that even in our own homes, the way we understand God and do that in our own homes with our children, our children would ultimately resent us. Like, thanks, Dad, for treating me like a donkey and putting a carrot in front of me to motivate me. Right? It's, it's, it's dark. Tragically, that is how we see God. But that characterization does not square with what Psalm 103 is teaching us. Look at verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so, or in the same way, the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Let me just elaborate on two words in that, in verse 13. First is that word fear. So to fear, you, you, you guys might have heard word studies on this before, is not to be afraid. In the, in the Hebrew, it has a very positive connotation. It means to experience him with awe and wonder, a kind of soul reverence, right? And then that word compassion. Compassion is not pity. It is a deep, moving love that propels one to action. And so that, that word, compassion, is actually used at a couple different places in the Old Testament. It's actually the same word that's used in 1 Kings chapter 3. You might remember this story. There's a story of a woman whose baby died. And in her grief, she goes and steals another woman's child. And now you have two women, one baby, going before a judge. And the judge says, hey, like I know how to fix this. I'm going to take a sword, cut the baby in half. You get half, you get half. And the text says, the mother was filled with that same word, compassion. 
compassion, like her heart yearned for her child, willing to make great sacrifices for the child, or her, her heart yearned for the child. Well, God's heart yearns for his children. And this gets even more interesting in the text when it explains why God's heart yearns in this way. Look at verse 14. For, or, or because, he explains, he knows our frame. Like he knows how we're formed. He remembers that we are dust. Okay, like what does that mean? God loves his children. His heart yearns for them. Why? Because we're dust. I didn't see that coming. Seems like kind of wonky logic. What does that mean? It means that the Father knows that we are fragile and doubting, inconsistent, and clumsy, and hypocritical. Against all odds, the God of the Bible is depicted as a father whose love and affection is occasioned by and aroused by, provoked by our weakness. His love's not occasioned by our good performance. It's occasioned by our weakness. Like, are you guys listening to what I'm saying? God's love is awakened by the fact that we are dust. And listen, average to below average parents get this. Like, my children are quite diverse, right? They, all of them have strengths and weaknesses. And uh, when Amanda and I recognize, like, a weakness in one of our children, like, when one of them is weak, do you think that our love for them trends downwards? No. Like, if anything. When you see that in your child, it awakens a deep love. You kind of lean into that child even more. And if this is true for average to below average parents like us, how much more? How much more, God the Father? Do you see how the texture of fatherly love is more profound than what we can intuit? Like it's even awakened by our weaknesses. Will you tell your soul that? Tell your soul that. That's the second benefit. Let's consider the last benefit that our soul must be reminded of, and it's the Father's embrace, his reception. So uh, there's this movie that George Clooney made several years ago. It's called Up in the Air. And just a real quick disclaimer. When a pastor mentions a movie from the pulpit, everyone's like, family movie night. Don't do that. Like, it's not for all audiences. All right, I said it, everyone? No, no emails tomorrow? Okay. So Clooney plays this role, the role of this guy named Ryan Bingham. Uh, he's this uh, single professional executive type, and he specializes in, like, termination assistance. And so he's constantly traveling to, like, Fortune 500 company from one to another, helping them to lay off people. And, and he's really successful, and so he kind of has a side gig. He's a motivational speaker, and he has this talk that he gives. It's called, What's in Your Backpack? And in this talk, he extols the virtues of living with no material possessions, no strings-attached relationships. I mean, he is completely free. And uh, he's a frequent flyer with the, the explicit goal, in order to show that he's really free, that he lives by his credo, 
He has this goal to earn 10 million frequent flyer miles with American Airlines. So on his travels, he meets this lady, very similar to him, also traveling quite a bit. Her, his, her name is Alex, um, and she appears to have the same philosophy of life as he does. So they meet a few times, and at one point, Alex, you know, the female interest, shoots off a series of questions that make uh, Ryan, or Clooney's character, think that maybe, just maybe his philosophy in life is wrong. But he starts to really like her. So he decides he's like, he's going to go for it. Like he's, he's going to really get into this relationship. He's going to betray his own philosophy. He, he wants to like be in a relationship with this woman. And so on an impulse, he flies to Chicago, finds Alex's home, and he realizes that she has a husband and a family. And like he's stunned. And so he leaves and he's like rethinking everything. And she contacts him and she says, hey, this, my family, that's my real life. You're just the escape. So on his flight home, he's still stunned. The crew announces, congratulations to Ryan Bingham, who just flew 10 million miles. He did it. <laughs> he accomplished his goal. 10 million frequent flyer miles. And in that moment, a sadness comes upon him, comes upon the viewer. And the film ends with Clooney's character standing in an airport, looking at this big de destination board with all these outgoing flights. And he's just wondering, where do I go next? Because he has no home, no roots. And there's a misery that kind of the audience can feel because no one is waiting for him at home. C.S. Lewis, he says, perhaps the metaphor for hell that is far worse than fire is being eternally forgotten by God whose notice and attention represents the most significant relationship anyone could have. The idea that no one is waiting for you at home. Perhaps the most abusive action that a parent could inflict on his or her child is to not recognize that they exist or that their existence didn't matter. Why? Because when a kid feels that way, they're orphans. They're not wanted because there's no embrace, no reception. Can you feel the pain of that thought? This describes the implication of verses 15 and 16. Look there again in your text. As for man, verse 15, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. Verse 16, for the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. So David, the lyricist, he understands like the horror of being forgotten but he does not leave the song there, right? He changes. And so he reminds us of this one place that we can call home, this one place that is eternally familiar. So in contrast to verses 15 and 16, look at verse 17. He says, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. See, home is our father's certain and loving embrace. It is 
It is a pillow for our soul. Instead of the radical brevity of our days, what we get is everlasting love, everlasting embrace. God's embrace is the place of remembrance that our souls are looking for. Like, listen, in this life, there's always this cosmic loneliness. There's this cosmic aimlessness that haunts us. We feel it. Have you ever felt it, like, in the stillness of your soul? Right? You know what I'm talking about. That in this life, no matter how good it is, even that best moment, it never quite fully pays out. When I go home to Houston, where I grew up, it feels like, at least as an adult, the city has lost a little bit of its magic. What I realized is that this feeling I have about the city that I grew up in has nothing to do with the city has everything to do with me. See, the Bible tells us that we live in exile, that our first parents, Adam and Eve, because of their cosmic mutiny, they're kicked out of the garden. They were exiled. And to this day, we all join them in exile. And we are all desperately trying to get back to Eden. And on occasion, in this life, there will be these echoes of Eden. On occasion, like when you stand right at the edge of the Grand Canyon or your toes are in the warm sand of a beach and you're looking out into the infinite ocean or when you're summoning the top of Mount Bierstadt and you just see endless infinite mountains that are breathtaking or when you're at the front of City Park and you see this beautiful curated green lawn and you see the city skyline and the mountains behind it and the orange there, for a moment you get this echo of Eden. It feels both familiar and unfamiliar. It's like it's new, it's familiar, it's, but it's a song that is haunting and it, it, reverber, it reverberates off the halls of your chest. It, it's really special, but it's elusive. It doesn't, doesn't last and I wonder if it's like we're all, all of us here are like these immigrants. We're all, but we're trying to return to our homeland, but no one has ever seen our homeland before. We know that it's ours, but we haven't seen it, and we want to get back there. And we're all trying to capture that place, capture that moment, capture that tune that is like a pillow for our soul something that would embrace every part of what we are designed for. But in this life, it never comes. It's like lightning in a bottle. When I visited Houston, um, when my kids were younger, I was really excited about showing them all my favorite places. Uh, there was this one old field that was kind of hidden in this wooden area that I was really excited about showing my kids. I would bike to it, you know. I would spend all my summer days there. It was really the theater of my imagination. Endless summer days on my bike gave untold number of uh, wonders and adventures. I must have fallen in love a thousand times in that field. Uh, it was a world of infinite possibilities. There's a certain innocence and wonder that were contained in this private Eden of mine. But when I got to this hidden world, the unthinkable happened. In the words of the great sage Adam Duritz from Counting Crows, they paved paradise and put up a parking lot. 
I can't get back to Eden. I want to. Like, I want the magic and the wonder, but I can't. I want to go home. But home, even if I knew where it was, on this side of heaven would not pay out. Why? Because, as the lyricist sings, our days are like grass, and its place knows it no more. Don't you see? But David, here through this song, he's promising something even better than that secret field. He's saying, home, the place that remembers you, it's actually not a place, it's an embrace. You are home in the arms of your father. And it can sustain you in this life if you will let it. And it can be enough for your children as well. But here's what you must do. You must talk to your soul. You must say, bless the Lord, oh my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Soul, do you hear me? Like, bless the Lord and don't you dare forget his benefits. The father's, the father's discipline, the Father's love, the Father's certain embrace. Soul, remember it, savor it, sing it, swim in it, preach to your soul. Okay, let me just quickly conclude. And I need to say just one thing more because it would pain me if upon hearing the sermon, what you heard from me was this. Church, make a list, because I dutifully want you to be a grateful child. Be grateful, enumerate his benefits. You remember his benefits, don't you? Discipline, love, embrace. You wouldn't want to be an ingrate child, would you? Right? If that's what you heard me say, I'm so sorry. That's not what, that's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm actually longing for something far more romantic. Psalm 103 is not this forced song. It's like this contagious song that you can't get out of your heart. You can't get it off your lips. The beauty of its truth, the, the hope of its message are meant to drive you to the altar of God's grace so that you say, God, I want to covenant with you. Like, I want to give myself to you. All that is within me, I want the assurance of being your child and you my father. How do we get there? And how do we get to that place? And David gives us the answer, but it's not easy. It's not easily uh, seeable. So I don't want you to miss this. Let me show you, because this is what all the commentators have noticed. In verse eight, David is quoting Moses, and he's doing so verbatim. Verse eight is a quote from Exodus 34. Verse eight, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And if you're a Jew in the audience and you're singing this, you know that verse, you know, you have known Exodus 34 since you were a child. You know what comes next because you have memorized it. Yes, keep steadfast love for the thousand, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. But this is what happens in Exodus 34 but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's Exodus 34. But in Psalm 103, 
it cuts that part out and it inserts something different. Instead of saying, by no means clear the guilty, what David says, he says he will not always chide. He will not keep his anger. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love for those who fear him. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That is a vastly different ending from vis vis visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, right? He's saying that as far as the east is from the west, we are infinitely separated from our guilt. Now listen, if you're on a globe and you're traveling north, at some point you'll start traveling south. But if you are on the globe and you're traveling east, you will always be traveling east. And if you're traveling west, you will always be traveling west. The two never meet. David is saying, because of God's mercy, your sin and God's justice will never touch. He infinitely removes and never holds it over your head ever. But how could he say something like that? I mean, like, who's right? Is Moses right or is David right? By all just calculations, the fathers and the sons should all pay for their sins. So how is mercy accomplished? The only way to understand this is through David's descendants. So David, a promise was made to him about this promised one, Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, the writers go to great lengths to show you that Jesus was the obedient son. He was the child that you were supposed to be, but you weren't. And he knew God was his heavenly father. And he was like so certain of that. Like the fatherhood of God animated the very ministry of who Jesus was. Every single time that Jesus references or talks about God, he doesn't call him God. What does he call him? Father, Abba Father, my Father. He's always calling God Father, except for this one time. Like one time Jesus drops the title. It's when he was hanging on a cross. And he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why have you rejected me? Like, what happened here? The father rejected the son. God did remember our sins. And God the father repaid God the son for the price of our sins. Why? The son was rejected by the father to ensure that you would never be rejected. That's what all of this is about. And you've got to know that. That's why we sing. And you need to beg your soul to believe that. Beg your soul to believe that. The certainty of God's fatherly love, a fatherly discipline, fatherly embrace comes through Jesus, the one true son. Would you let that saturate your soul? When you're weak, when you're weak and tired, feeling guilty, would you, 
Would you let the words of Psalm 103 talk to your soul? Oh, my soul, bless the Lord. Soul, listen to me. Do not forget his benefits. That is a, that is a sweet song for the soul. May it be yours. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Psalm 103. We believe, but help our unbelief. May our soul have ears to listen and to believe and to see beauty. For we pray to the glory of Jesus. Amen.